1: The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, and welcome to Climactic. I'm your host for today's episode, Mark Spencer. As I record this, it's Saturday, the 31st of October. Happy Halloween. But this week's episode of Climactic brings you something even more spooky. The Australian federal government's reaction and strange lack of action in the wake of the 2019-2020 summer bushfires, a little under 12 months ago today. We're going to replay you an episode of Catastrophic, the political action project in the form of a podcast by Kel Butler that she released in the wake of the bushfires, first-hand accounts from bushfire survivors. Content warning up top that this is a hairy topic, it is emotionally intense, and if you're not up for that right now, it's okay to skip it and come back later. But before we replay this episode, the story of Solari Gentle, an author, the partner of an RFS firefighter, I'm quickly going to read you some quotes from a recent article published October 30th in The Conversation. Its title is, The Bushfire Royal Commission Has Made a Clarion Call for Change. Now, we need politics to follow. The author of this article is David Bowman, professor of pyrogeography, and Fire Science at the University of Tasmania. He states, The Bushfire Royal Commission today handed down its long-awaited final report. At almost 1,000 pages, it will take us all some time to digest. But it marks the start of Australia's national disaster adaptation journey, after a horrendous summer. The report clearly signals the urgent need to improve disaster management capacity in Australia. Closer examination of the report will determine if other recommendations are needed. But overall, this seems a realistic report that incorporates a diverse and complex body of evidence, and it arrives at recommendations likely to enjoy broad political, institutional, and community support. As the report states, the 2019-2020 bushfires were the catalyst for, but not the sole focus, of the inquiry. It also looked at floods. Bushfires, earthquakes, storms, cyclones, storm surges, landslides, and tsunamis. The recommendations demonstrate the Royal Commission is serious about shifting the status quo when it comes to managing Australia's natural disasters. Events that will become more frequent and severe under climate change. What's needed now is political will for change. The commission received evidence from more than 270 witnesses, almost 80,000 pages of tendered documents, and more than 1,750 public submissions. It recaps the damage wrought, including more than 24 million hectares burnt nationally, 33 human deaths, and perhaps many more due to smoke haze over much of eastern Australia, more than 3,000 homes destroyed, thousands of locals and holidaymakers trapped, Communities isolated without power, communications, and ready access to essential goods and services. Estimated national financial impacts over 10 billion Australian dollars. Nearly 3 billion animals killed or displaced. Many threatened species and other ecological communities extensively harmed. The report noted every state and territory suffered fire to some extent, adding on some days extreme conditions drove a fire behavior that was impossible to control. Jumping down to the climate question, quote, the climate question. During last summer's bushfire crisis, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was reluctant to draw links to climate change. And before the inquiry commenced, there was much doubt over whether it would adequately probe how climate change is contributing to natural disasters. Significantly, the commission's final report explicitly recognizes climate change Increases the risk and impacts of natural disasters It says global warming beyond the next 20 to 30 years is largely dependent on the trajectory of greenhouse gas emissions But stops far short of calling federal government action on emissions reduction The report says extreme weather has already become more frequent and intense because of climate change Further global warming over the next 20 to 30 years is inevitable. It goes on Globally, temperatures will continue to rise, and Australia will have more hot days and fewer cool days. Sea levels are also projected to continue to rise. Tropical cyclones are projected to decrease in number but increase in intensity. Floods and bushfires are expected to become more frequent and more intense. Catastrophic fire conditions may render traditional bushfire prediction models and firefighting techniques less effective. Back to the conversation, among its recommendations, the report calls for improved national climate and weather intelligence to support governments to implement, assess, and review their disaster management and climate adaptation strategies. So, will this Royal Commission lead to substantive change? The inquiry suggests this will require that governments commit to action and cooperate and hold each other to account Further, progress towards implementing the recommendations should be publicly monitored. Fundamentally, political appetite will determine whether the Royal Commission's recommendations ever become reality. There is much work to be done by governments and others to iron out the legal, administrative, social, and practical complexities of changing the status quo. And the Morrison government has given next to no indication it's willing to seriously tackle the problem of climate change. Ultimately, these findings are small steps towards achieving natural disaster resilience. To paraphrase Winston Churchill, this report can be read not as the beginning of the end, but perhaps the end of the beginning, of the long road to climate change adaptation. End quote. And there's something that you can do listening now, in the next few days. I'm now going to play for you a video by friend of the show, Sarah Rickards who's going to quickly bring you up to speed on the Climate Change Act. Find a link to learn more and get involved in the show notes. So I'll hand over to Sarah, and then enjoy this episode of Catastrophic with Solari Gentle. As the summer heats up, it's time to remember the bushfires, and do everything we can to make them a cautionary tale and not a new normal.
2: Hi, I'm Sarah, I'm a scientist. You might remember me from the Vote for the Planet campaign back in 2019, where half a million of you jumped on board asking our politicians and parties to update their climate change policies. And right now, we have a huge opportunity to really up the ante here. So an independent politician, Sally Stegall, is taking a climate change bill to parliament on the 9th of November on behalf of all of us, asking the government to put into law real action on climate change. This is the type of bill that has been adopted by New Zealand just last year, the UK, France and Germany as well. And what we need to do is, again, create another movement to show that the people of Australia really want this. Right now, we have 80,000 people in support of this, but we need to get another half a million. So what you can do is jump on board, sign this and share it. You can find the details at climateactnow.com.au. You'll need to know what a federal election you're in. So you can also Google that and I'll provide the details of how to do that as well. And right now, what this really does is create transparency, unlike any other petition that you might have seen before, which is just a lump sum of numbers. This one shows who in which electorate is really in support of this, making sure that the politicians who are speaking on behalf of you are voting on behalf of you. This has never, ever been done before. This is huge. This is going to really put the power back into the people we need to get behind it. What this does is this disrupts politics. It says we don't want people who are thinking in just short-term cycles anymore, in three months and three years. We want politicians to be thinking in terms of the next three and 30 generations. We wanna be leaving a safe planet for the future generations and we want real action on climate change. We want the politicians to listen to us and know that we, we do care about climate change. So please jump on board. Please share this with as many people as you can. We have until the 9th of November to garner as much support as possible. Please share this with as many people as you can and let's do this, Australia.
0: Just a quick word of warning. This podcast tells honest and raw stories from the Australian bushfires that may be triggering for some people. Please take care when listening to this podcast and stop if it makes you feel anxious or uncomfortable in any way. We recommend wearing headphones, especially if there are kids around. Always follow me, always will be, Aboriginal man. Oh, oh. So Mo has got to go. Catastrophic. Tales from the Aussie Bush Fires.
3: I'm Solari Gentle. I'm a writer and I live in Batlow. Um, My husband and my son are both members of the RFS in the Batlow Brigade, so I first became aware of uh, the bushfire as it hit us. I I was aware of what was happening around the state, um, the fires on the coast, Cobargo, etc. But the, the bushfire that was most relevant to Batlow, which was the Duns Road fire, um I first became aware of it when Michael was called out to Ellisley, which is about a hundred kilometres from where we live, um, to fight a fire that had taken off. And because he was there, I was watching the RFS site and I saw it when it was uh, you know, a two hectare fire, and then all of a sudden it was uh, a ten hectare fire and then it was a hundred hectares and then it was two hundred and then all of a sudden it was two thousand hectares. And so we had been watching it grow. And I, I wasn't particularly concerned beyond general concern for for my area and, and for the people who I knew lived um, near Ellerslie. Um, I had I had friends who had houses on that road um, and I messaged them to check, well, just to let them know that I was thinking of them. I, I assumed that they'd be too busy to apply. Michael came home from that fire and he said to me, Solari, if, (coughs) pardon me, uh, if that, um, if it gets away into the forest, into the state forest, it's coming straight for us. And it was at that point that we started to get a little bit concerned, or I started to get a little bit concerned and and watch it more closely. Um, What happened uh, was in the space of one night that Fire did get into the into the forest, and it travelled a hundred kilometres towards us. Now, where we live is on the old Tumbarumba Road, which is uh, a road that sort of runs up above uh, Batlow. It's it's a road on which all the orchards uh, lie, and it backs onto the state forest. Um, and so, when Michael came home, um, I think it was the the night before New Year's Eve. So it would have been the 30th. Um, And my my eldest son, Edmund, uh, who is 18, is also a member of the RFS. We knew that he would be called out to fight in um, uh, the next morning. So we made him go to sleep. So he went to sleep in his his uniform so that he would be ready to go to do a shift the next day on the Ellisley fire. And Michael and I stayed up all night uh, in our backyard, watching for embers, uh, because we expected the fire to start to hit that night um, so we had uh, brought up all the the pumps, the spare water uh, we had our hoses ready, and they were just garden hoses, but we had them ready and i was I was slightly alarmed but not panicked because Michael's been a member of the RFS for a long time, and he said, "Look, we'll just keep back the embers, um, and uh, we should be able to be uh, to protect the house." Of course, at that time we had no no concept of what a monster this fire would be. At some time during the night, um, and we we were sitting out in the backyard, and we we live on a little bit of a property, so. You know, when you sit in your backyard, it's actually, you're looking out on many, many uh, hectares, and there is eucalyptus forest directly behind us, and beyond that, there's state pine forest. Um, And we could see the glow through the trees as we were sitting there that night. And at some point, I started to get a little bit panicked. And I thought, I have to get my dogs out of here. Because if we have to run at the last minute, we can't pile all the dogs into the car and gather them out um, if if we're going. So I rang a friend of mine in Batlow in town because I thought, well, town will be safe. And and I asked her if I could drop my dogs off at her house. And she said, sure. And so at some time around midnight, I put all the dogs in the car. And there's four of them. And I drove them down to Batlow to leave them in a house in town. And as I was driving back um, out of Batlow towards my road, I could see the cloud. I could see the fire turning into a, a massive cloud with lightning at the top of it. And it felt almost like you were driving towards an atomic explosion. And it was at that point that I thought, whoa, we are really in trouble here. But I went back um, because Michael and Edmund were both in the house and Michael and I sat out all night and nothing happened. The embers didn't come our way. Um, Edmund got up at five or four in the morning and he headed in uh, to do his shift. Um, And we made it through the night and the fire had diverted. And it had missed us by about three kilometers um, at that time, and it had headed into the um the road between Batlow and Tumbarumba, which got hit very badly uh, with kanama and and during the night, you know I'm getting messages from people in Tumbarumba and friends that i I know who have houses in Kanama. and we're talking about you know who's still standing, etc, but it missed us that first night, and we got up in the morning and we thought right we've made it through the night and and daybreak always makes things feel better so uh, we thought we've survived it it's, it's fine we, we had one hairy night but it's okay we're fine but we spent the rest of the day so Michael knew that he was going to go on shift the next day or that afternoon um, and uh, so we spent the we spent the day you know cleaning up around the yard making sure there wasn't any debris as much as we possibly could um, and it was a really hot day and it was really windy but we felt like we had survived by then. Um, in the afternoon, at some time in the afternoon, and, and, and of course because I thought we were safe, we did not we did nothing in return, in terms of packing anything up or preparing to leave because we didn't think we'd have to. I went and got my dogs back from Batlow, um and um and we just you know did the responsible thing of tidying up around the place um and you know uh, hosing down the roof and filling gutters at about three or four in the afternoon a neighbor came across and he said what are you two still doing here and we said, well, you know, the danger's past, it's okay. And, um, and he informed us that no, the fire was, gonna, was coming towards us in two different directions now. And the flank is coming from behind and the main fire was coming um, from the south. Um, and he said, you go now or you won't get out. And, you know, we, <laughs> we did what people normally do because you feel safest in your home. We thought, oh, he's being hysterical and um and we continued to tidy up around the place and we sort of you know paid attention to him because we didn't think we want him to think we were dismissing him but we were kind of dismissing him and then the police arrived at the house and uh they virtually said to us are you going or are you staying and michael was saying oh well we thought we'd stay we've We've got, you know, this much water. And we're on tank water. We don't have a dam and we're not in town water. Uh, we have this much water in the tanks. And we're, you know, we're prepared to fight. Um, and the policeman looked at the big trees around our house. And he didn't say anything about the trees, but he said to us, you do realise that because of where you are, you will get no help. If things go up, you're on your own. And it was at that point that I started to panic because I thought, well, if we're on our own, if we can't call anyone for help when we get into trouble, that's, that's it. Um, and, uh, and we do have, you know, a, we, we live in a, in an old rambling weatherboard house. Um, it's, uh, it's surrounded by big trees and creepers and garden. Um, the, we, we had in Batlow, we had been, uh, we hadn't felt the drought the way the rest of the state had until the last week before the fires, when all those hot drying winds came through and it killed off our grass and everything was starting to feel dry. Um, so I started to think, hold on, this is, this is not good. And Michael also then started to think, well, okay, well maybe we should play it safe and leave. Um and I, I was also aware that at the time I have a fourteen-year-old who was away in Melbourne visiting a friend, and it's it's one thing I think when you're young to say I'll stay and fight and I'll risk my life, but I was thinking we'll leave him an orphan. If if something happens, he's on his own, and I can't do that. So um, it was, and it was a really really hard decision to abandon your house. Um, and, and to abandon your property and on, and the worst part of it is I had to abandon my horses. I have two little ponies, um, that have lived on the property and they, you know, there's the uh, Matilda came to us when Edmund was five years old He oh, well, three years old, actually, he learned to ride on her. And of course she's a little pony. So in a couple of years he outgrew her and she's just been a pet since and And then we, there's a little Brumby that came uh, along to live with us to keep Matilda company. And they mainly just mow the lawn and hang around and are our friends. But I had no way of getting them out. Um, so we we spent another hour um, putting them into the largest paddock we can could and uh, making sure they had water and opening all the gates so that they had places to run to. Um, and then we grabbed the camper trailers because we didn't know where we were going. We thought, well, with the camper trailer we have a bed or a mattress in there at least. Um, and uh, and I threw, I went into the wardrobe. And the funny thing is that um, when you're at that last moment of panic, of you've got five minutes to find what clothes to take with you, you take the most absurd things in the world. Uh, you, know, you, you grab evening gowns <laughs> because you're panic. <laughs> and uh, and I had one pair of boots and um, and two dresses, no jeans, <laughs> and uh, and Michael, Michael took ties. <laughs> he, took, he took a suit and a tie, <laughs> and uh, and we threw them we threw them into the bag. <laughs> we put the four dogs in, and we drove, and we took the two cars. Um, because um, we had four dogs, so I took two. Michael took two, and he dragged the camper trailer, and we started driving. And we had, uh, and we went out the back way towards Tumut, and um, and then we got into Tumut. Michael pulled over, and he said to me, "Where are we going to go?" Um, and it was at that moment, and it, it was at that moment that. Uh, the whole um the whole network of Australians started and a friend and I had posted on Facebook we're abandoning the house we're going now and all of a sudden we were just inundated with offers from people and some people I'd never met before in my life saying come come and stay we have a spare room you can stay here you can bring your dog um and in the end uh uh, a friend from Tumut put me in touch with her father who gave us a house in Tumut to live in. Now, Tumut is only about half an hour from Batlow and I didn't want to go too far, so that was perfect for us. Um, and we we sort of stopped at that house thinking, this will be over in a day. We only need it for two days and then we'll, we'll go back home. The The danger will be over one way or another. and at that time i was aware that the house could go but i didn't really want to believe it the fire hadn't really hit us yet or we we, we knew that old Tumbarumba road was in serious danger and that just up the way in kanama houses we were ablaze um And I had a call from Edmund. We had a call from Edmund sometime during that day as well. And he was fighting the fires at Kanama and he called us to say, get out. Um, So it was that heightened sense of danger, but um, not really coming to terms with the idea that everything was going to go. And I'm very good at not thinking about things I don't want to think about. So I turned my mind off because um at the front of everything aside from the house was my horses ponies um and uh, and that was you know that was what i was thinking about the whole time um what happened after that uh was michael sort of suited up and went out with the rfs again and i was i was in that in that house by myself just following everything i could on the rfs sites, the ABC, which was giving you up-to-date information on what was happening, uh, messaging people in and out of Batlow. Within, we were one of the first people to leave Batlow, that was uh, New Year's Eve, um, because of where we were on the old Umberrumba Road. Um, In the following days, I think New Year's Day uh, or the day after, um, the RFS and uh, the emergency services uh, held a big meeting uh, with the town, and Batlow was told that it was undefendable. That the fire was heading straight, not just for Old Tumbarumba Road, but for the town, and it was undefendable. There was nothing they could do; we would burn. And so, what happened at that point was that people started piling out of Batlow. Eventually, the little house that I was living in, living in in Tumbarumba, in Tumut. I had three refugee families from Batlow um, because we all just piled in. Um, all of us had um, uh, family members in the RFS and we didn't want to go too far. But Tumut was also under uh, under a bit of danger as well, but it was safer. And Tumut has a river running through it. So we always we always thought, well, if worse comes to worse, we can go to the river in Tumut and sit in the river. Um but our big concern was was that low, and we knew that the big horrible day would be Friday night Saturday, when the fire was going to hit, and it just got hotter and hotter and hotter, and that day um, that it hit, and you know it was it was interesting in that we had um, there was there was a long time there when we didn't know whether our houses were standing, so we knew the fire was raging in Batlow, but you couldn't get in or out. There was one one time when things sort of cooled off a bit, and you could get into Batlow, and they were letting people in to go look at livestock and check on livestock. And I drove up um, and by myself. Michael and Edmund were both fighting the fires on Duns Road, uh, the Duns Road fire on um, the road between Batlow and Tambarumba. And um, and so I jumped in my car and I thought I'm going up. I'm going to check on the horses. I bought, I went to Coles and bought a huge bag of carrots, and I I headed up. Um, and it was it was eerie. It's you know the 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 thing that's uh, amazing about Batlow is that it is a place that's teeming with wildlife, and we get used to it. We don't. We almost take it for granted. So here under normal circumstances, there's always bird song. And often in the mornings, it's what wakes you up because the birds are so down loud. And that summer we'd had a lot of cicadas. So there was this background scream of cicadas. But as I was, as I came up, it was quiet. There was nothing and it was smoky. It was just so thick with smoke. And I got to the house and I, um, and I thought I might grab some things while I'm here. Because it had started to dawn on me, this was really, really serious. And I kind of was happy to be there by myself because I wanted the chance to say goodbye. And so I, um, I walked around the house and I grabbed paintings off the wall. And you feel like a thief in your own house. Um, it's a really bizarre thing to take paintings off the wall in your own house because you're trying to save the paintings. You feel like you're, you're robbing your own house. And I got to the point where I grabbed some paintings off the wall and I was, the smoke was so thick that I'd be in the house. I'd grab a few things and then I'd take a deep breath and I'd run outside to put them in the car because the air outside was so thick with smoke you couldn't breathe. Um, and I did this once or twice. And then I – and I'm a writer, so I stood in front of the bookshelf where all my books were from when I started being published and all the books from other writers with first edition signed. And I I thought, what will I take? And I thought, how do I choose? And so in the end, I took nothing. I thought, well, I'll leave it with the house. Um, And if it goes, everything goes. And so I had my few paintings and then I, I had a I got a call from Michael and he was working on containment lights just behind a house uh a kilometer or two away and it was broken up signal and he said to me, he knew I was there, and he said, Solari, we've lost control of the fire, get out. And so I got in the car and I Headed out, I stopped at the paddock, I threw all the carrots in, I couldn't see my horses. Um, they were nowhere in sight. So I just threw the carrots next to the trough and I headed back down to Tumut. Um and I thought, by the time I got home, I thought, all right, well the house is gone. Um but uh <laughs> and um and then and then, you know, the the build up happened to that that terrible Saturday. And I had learned by then that no nope, my house was still standing um so even though the fire had got away, <laughs> the house was still standing somebody missed my house um, and um, and then we had that horrible day and i was i was by that time I was starting to not care about the house because Michael and Edmund and the rest of the rFs was in there and I was thinking, if Batlow is undefendable, why are we even leaving the RFS in there? Why aren't we pulling them out and saving them? Um, you know, let the town burn. It's not worth a life. Uh, but the RFS stayed and they defended. And then about half, about two o'clock in the afternoon, um, Michael rang me and he said, everybody's been pulled out of old Tumbarumba Road because the fires hit it. Our house will be gone in twenty minutes, and so you know that was that was that was the moment when I thought, well, it it's gone. It's just you know the house is gone, but it was it was also in, it was also the thought that not only the house, the the town was going to go, and so you know it's it's one thing to think you will you lose your house, but all your networks of support and familiarity in your town that you live in. And when you think that that's all going to go and everything is going to be gone, it suddenly makes you feel incredibly um, unanchored. And it's it's also a strange thing to, you know, be that that day when I was leaving the house, it's a very strange thing to be fleeing your own house because I think, you know, in in this crazy world that we live in and we all work and we all go out and we all meet people. Home is always refuge. It's always where you relax, where you feel safe. And suddenly when your house and your home is no longer safe, it's a very, very strange feeling. Um, So at that time I thought, well, my house is gone. I was, the the people I was sharing a house with also had houses in Batlow, but they were in Batlow. Uh, so there was a chance that their houses would survive. Um, and, and and they also were in better positions than us. We were in the most drastic position. So there were, there were people with bulldozers, putting containment lights and things around their house. And that night, I remember we all sat there. It was 40-something degrees, absolutely horrendously hot. We had tried to... Um, uh, secure the house we were staying in in Tumut as much as possible we slept, swept up all the leaves and got rid of all the rubbish and we hosed down the house uh, because the winds were coming and we had a plan and we all moved into the the garage which was right at the bottom of the house and built into the hill because we thought well if the fire comes it's likely to go over the top of these, and then we'll at least have a chance um, and at that time they had evacuated Tumut as well so it was quite eerie that day because there was no one there, um, and uh, and we had got onto the com uh, between the RF the RFS comms, the fire comms, so that we could listen to what was happening with the trucks through that night. Um, and we, I remember, we heard the the Batlow captain um, say that the fire had had gone pyro nimbo cumulus and it has hit and I remember I remember and you recognize the voices because they're men you've known and they're steady men and they're men who've dealt with fires before and when you hear panic in their voices it's terrifying and uh and you you hear the exchanges of what's going on in the trucks you hear you hear men begging for help uh begging for air, aerial help And, and the, and the person who was uh, managing the the comms having to tell them there's no help coming. Uh, it's too smoky. They can't, they can't send any, um, water bombers up. There's nothing coming. Um, and that was, it, it was just the most amazing, traumatic thing to have to listen to this, knowing that you have family in there. And i was thinking the whole time this is crazy why aren't they just evacuating the rfs um and just just letting it go um but the rfs stayed and they fought um and i heard a lot of these i heard a lot of the stories from michael and edmund afterwards about what they did in particular and and this that night my 18 year old he his position on the cat one, which is the big fire truck, is he's he's the guy that stands at the top of the truck with the hose, and so he spent twenty three hours on the top of that truck with a high pressure hose in a row. Um, Michael uh, had smaller hose at a different area of the truck, um, and he was he was telling me there was one point they were going down one road and it was it was just red. It was that footage that has become famous now of a fire truck going through fire. He said there was fire going over the road on both sides of them. And it was absolutely hot in the truck. Um, but Edmund went up um, because he's 18 and 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And, uh, and uh, he took the big hose to try and douse the flames around as the truck was driving, uh, which was incredibly dangerous. Um, and Michael was saying he didn't want him to go, but Edmund insisted. And then Michael sa- was saying that he thought it was too dangerous, uh, but the thought of Edmund being there alone was something he couldn't he couldn't live with. So he went up as well, and took the small hose. and And he thought, well, at least you know we'll die together. Um, but they but they managed to to hold it back. The truck melted um edmund's helmet melted um in in the heat and but they managed to save i think 80 80 percent of the houses in batlow um but and all the time that was happening they were aware that our house was gone or they thought that our house was gone was burning um and and so and that's you know that that I didn't sleep that night and because I was up listening to the comms, watching the fire, listening to any sound that there had been casualties in Batlow, any any news of that sort, uh, watching Facebook in case anyone posted anything uh, that I wasn't aware of. And it was just this uh, feverish night of being glued to your, your devices, uh, trying to get whatever information you could whilst it is, you know, 43 degrees. In the in the house, and you know, there's there's ten people all hovered around there. Um, and then about two o'clock in the morning, um, my neighbour who had stayed to fight, and they had stayed to fight because they're incredibly prepared. They have a different sort of property to ours. Their their house is in sort of the middle of cleared paddocks, and they have big bulldozers. So they had bulldozed around their house several times and created a fire break um and of course they didn't have the big trees that we have and they they don't actually back onto eucalypt forest um so uh but i i i got a message from karen and it was just on facebook and it said "Solari ryan we thought we saw your house burn but ryan's just been up there and your house is still standing and it was this feeling of, how does this happen? And I wasn't, you know, I, I believed it, but I knew it wasn't over. <laughs> and uh, so I believed it with hesitation of, okay, <laughs> it, when she sent this message, the house was still standing. Um, but um, it turned out it was. And, and Karen tells me afterwards or now that, um after she'd sent that message to me, she couldn't sleep because she thought, what if the house burns now? And I've told Solari it's standing. Um, but as it was, it did. It survived it. Um, everything else was burnt. So all the outbuildings, my garden, um, um, the all the, some of the really grand old trees. Uh, we were protected, I think, because of those trees that we thought would kill us. Um, the house is surrounded by oaks and they caught the flames and they held them Um, and and when you see our garage which is just ash and it is two metres from the house um, (laughs) the house is standing all the tanks have melted Um, it was, you know, everything was metal is just charred um, I have I have these wonderful shards of glass which have been killed into these amazing shapes because it was so hot. And yet, for some reason, the house did not go up. And we've had neighbours say to us, you know, um, uh, where next time we build a house, we're going to let you pick the spot because obviously you're good at picking miracles <laughs> because um, because the house shouldn't. Be. Um, the boy's cubby was Ash um, and we built that when Edmund was two with him. It was an old garden shed that we moved and we turned it. And of course, you know, Edmund was, a, was an only child and our first child then. So we were ridiculous as most parents are with their first children. And we had built him this amazing hubby that both the boys had adored and you know, I I went all Michelangelo and painted murals on the ceiling, all of that <laughs> insane thing that <laughs> you do. Um and that burnt to the ground. Um there was nothing left of it. Um the the garden and the trees, all the roses went up. But the house was still there. Um so a couple of days afterward the with the the day afterwards M- Michael and Edmund went back to see what was left, fully expecting to see nothing but rubble. And they found our house standing, and they found my horses. That was the main thing. I had there's uh, a lot of my messaging had been: Has anyone seen my horses? <laughs> Can anyone check on my horses? And um, and they were there. And luckily, they had. We had been <coughs> hit by two fires. And the first part fire was a slow burning trickle fire, um, and it had burnt part of the paddock, so it meant that when the second fire came through, they could go into the burnt parts and wait it out um, so that was that was amazing um, the, and an amazing reunion but in a funny way having having those moments of of Thinking of really believing that the house was gone, that the horses were gone, um, and 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 the horses more than anything else, I thought they were relying on me to save them, and I couldn't. Um, and having that night of thinking, my my husband or my son could be gone, makes me very um, very not blasé, but very relaxed about. What has happened, so in the end, when we came back uh, to to the house, everything but the house is gone um, the The horses survive, but the paddocks are gone. The truffery is burnt um, It may survive, but it, it it's been impacted quite heavily. The fences are gone i've got no front fence um it feels kind of exposed here um but uh and and it's charred everything's footy um but you know i i'm really aware of how much worse it could have been and so in the end we're just happy <laughs> to be honest uh we're we're happy that by some stroke of luck it wasn't a whole stack worse um, I think that we need to really get serious if we are putting people in this kind of danger you know we need to say well forget the cost we're, you know we're going to do whatever it takes to make them as safe as we humanly can um, I what struck me is that the RFS doesn't have breathing gear um, I know that Edmund and Michael were fighting in this, Absolutely choking smoke. How are these houses that were ablaze that were filled with asbestos and they had the little white masks that you get from the chemist? And that was it. Um, but you know, aside from that, there's there's been so much uh, about what the government did and didn't do. And certainly, I'm as angry as anybody that this was allowed to happen. This is not. Uh, normal cycle it is not an unforeseeable thing it was foreseen the bigger question is when we as a country are going to stop putting our heads in the sand and acknowledge that we we do have a climate emergency a disaster unfolding and that we are in the middle of it and we are responsible for it um, and only we can actually turn it back Now I can understand the allure of pretending that we can do nothing about it the the allure of pretending it's just a natural cycle and everything will go back to normal eventually. Um, it's a little bit like when I was uh, not wanting to think that my house had burnt to the ground, not wanting to think about it um, because it was it was just too much and it was too awful to contemplate but the the reality is that grown-ups can't do that we can't go on pretending forever and and now is the time to get serious um to get real about what is happening and to do something about it but more than just our leadership and i i i will acknowledge that i think our leadership failed us uh, here, I think the reason that we were on fire is our leadership refused to acknowledge what was happening, refused to look uh, at advice, refused to listen to people who were saying, this is what is going to happen. Um, and, you know, to, to the extent that uh, our Prime Minister refused to have meetings with fire chiefs who had been trying to, to warn him exactly of this for a year beforehand uh, when things might have been done to protect towns like Batlow. Um, but aside from that, I think what I would like to say is not so much to our leadership, but to the Australian people. Our leadership is there because we vote them in. We need to start making an env- environment a priority, a priority in the way we think, in the way we act, and most importantly, in the v- way we vote. Um, it will never be a priority for our leaders unless their jobs depend on it. Um, and we have got to start thinking that what someone says they are willing to do for our environment, and what and how important uh, that is to their agenda, is is going to outweigh things like franking credits. We will not be distracted and dissuaded from the the most important challenge that's facing this generation um, and the world today by being uh, seduced into worrying about issues which in the the face of having everything burn around you mean nothing.
0: You're listening to Catastrophic, a dual podcast and political protest project. Catastrophic tells the tales of the Australian bushfires and calls for all partisan political action around climate change. Each episode of Catastrophic features an Australian talking about their experience of living through the bushfire crisis, what their fears are now and for the future, and what they would like to see done about it on a government level. But it doesn't end when the episode of Catastrophic goes out. We at Listen Up Podcasting are taking every story we gather, every episode we release of the Catastrophic Podcast and sending it to all the politicians every single week. We will also be alerting the media organisations every single time a file goes out. That way, the police can't pretend these stories don't matter and that these demands for change don't exist. So what are the demands? What are we demanding on the Catastrophic Podcast from the government? Pretty simple, really. 1. No new coal, oil and gas projects, including the Adani Mine and the Walara 2 Coal Project. 2. 100% renewable energy generation and exports by 2030. 3. Fund a just transition and job creation for all fossil fuel workers and communities. 4. Hand over land conservation management to First Nations Australians. 5. Start preserving our water and treating it as a precious resource, not a sellable commodity. If you or anyone you know has a story they would like to share from or about the Aussie bushfires, please instant message us via the Catastrophic Podcast Facebook page or email us at info at and we will get in touch with you and record your story. It may not be straight away, we are fielding a lot of stories at the moment, but every single one is important and we will get to all of them. Thank you for listening to and participating in the Catastrophic Podcast Project. Our bushfire season hasn't ended yet. So my big message to you is please be safe. Look after each other, care for this planet and do not stop fighting for action around climate change. This podcast was produced and edited by Kil Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.
1: Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people of the Climactic Collective and all the shows on the network. At climactic.com.au. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times.
2: The Climactic Collective.